Let's go ahead and get started. We are looking at Colossians and Philemon. Colossians is on the front of your handout. Philemon is on the back. We're doing them together just because both books have the same historical context, the same author, the same date. Uh, they were carried by the same person. They're both going to the same church. There's really no point in separating them, so we're going to stick Philemon kind of in the middle of Colossians, and hopefully that'll make sense when we get there. So we're going to do Colossians and then just kind of jump over to Philemon. All right, well, let's start with, let's talk about the city of Colossae. The letter to the Colossians was written to the church in the city of Colossae. What do we know about this little city? It's located in the region of Phrygia. Anybody know where Phrygia was? Anybody? Asia Minor? What modern day? Turkey. Turkey. Here's Asia Minor, or what is today Turkey. There's Greece. Israel's over here. And Colossae is right there. It was located on the southern banks of the Lycus River. There's the Meander River, and it has a tributary that comes off. This is the Lycus River. And it's actually in a valley. And it sat on the southern shore of the Lycus River. They believe the city extended to the north and made it to the northern shore of the Lycus River, but there's no actual evidence of that. This actually is a large valley. And it extends all the way up the Lycus River. At its widest point, this valley is 10 miles wide. At the most narrow, it's 2 miles. And Colossae sits in the most narrow portion of the valley. And on each side, to the north and the south, there are large mountain ranges. To the south, there's uh, Mount Cadmus, which is roughly 8,000 feet in elevation. And so it sits really deep inside this valley. This map is a little too up-to-date. Because Colossae rose to prominence mainly because of a trade route. The trade route that you see here that goes into Laodicea used to come down into Colossae and then go north to Laodicea. This is the main trade route that came out of the east. And if people wanted to get over here to Ephesus, they would jump on this trade route to get there. And it would take them directly through Colossae. That trade route would then split... And one would go up to Philadelphia, and one would go out to Ephesus. And this trade route brought a lot of commerce, it brought a lot of business, it brought a lot of people. And Colossae, as long as this trade route was going through Colossae, Colossae was growing, it was prosperous, it was wealthy. In fact, it was so wealthy that in 482 BC, the Persian king Xerxes visited Colossae. Anybody remember who Xerxes is in the Bible? Yes, Ahasuerus from the book of Esther is said to have gone and visited Colossae when this trade route was going through it. Roughly 11 miles to the northeast is Laodicea. Now, I say roughly 11 miles to the northeast. They're not really certain where Colossae was. We'll explain why that is. The, the, the location can move around. But we, they say it's 11 miles to the northeast is Laodicea. This was the chief city, it was the capital city of the region. And it actually had oversight over 25 cities in the area. It was also an important banking center that had become very, very wealthy. Anybody know where we can find information that says Laodicea was wealthy? Revelation. Revelation. Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Revelation. In fact, if you see the stars... All the stars on this map are the seven churches of Revelation. This is the only map I could find that would actually show Colossae and Laodicea with Laodicea to the north, so I used it. Revelation 3, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and the eye salve 
and Isav to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Laodicea had become extremely wealthy. And when this trade route moved from Colossae to Laodicea, Laodicea's wealth only increased. And we know they were extremely wealthy because unlike Colossae, we still have remains from the city of Laodicea. These pictures aren't as great as I was hoping they would be, but as you can see, what remains of the city, it was rather extensive. And there's those mountains in the back, just so you can see the valley. Six miles north of Laodicea is Heropolis. This city was well known for one thing, and one thing only. Hot springs. Those hot springs. Even today we see those and we're like, hey, <laughs> I want to go there. This became known as kind of a health resort and good vacation spot. You can go lounge out in God's spa. Now, why do I talk about all these cities? Because these cities are so close together, they're in constant communication. They're constantly having people travel between the three cities. And if you want to understand the book of Colossians, you need to understand that these, this city was in the middle of this group. And they had a whole bunch of activity going on. But by the time Paul gets to Colossae, or by the time Paul writes to the Colossians, let me rephrase my statement, the city had dwindled. It had dwindled in size, it had dwindled in influence because that trade route was no longer there. The wealth had gone. The once thriving city was now just shrinking. Uh, John MacArthur, in Paul's day, it was a small city overshadowed by its more prosperous neighbors. That trade route was a lifeblood of this little city. And the Romans changed the route, and so they took a lot of the wealth away. J.B. Lightfoot, who actually does really good work, said this, We shall therefore be prepared to find that while Laodicea and Heropolis both hold important places in the early records of the church, Colossae disappears wholly from the pages of history. Its comparative insignificance is still attested by its ruins, which are few and meager, while the vast remains of temples, baths, theaters, aqueducts, gymnasia, and sepulchers, strewing the extensive sites of its more fortunate neighbors, still bear witness to their ancient prosperity and magnificence. Colossae's remains are so meager, they're not even sure they're looking at the city of Colossae. So they can't really say, this is for certain Colossae, which is why I said... The map varies, and if you look at different maps, they'll put it on in different places, because it just varies. J.B. Lightfoot continues, It is not even mentioned by Ptolemy, though his enumeration of towns includes several inconsiderable places. Without doubt, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul is addressed. In fact, <laughs> the only reason you know about the city of Colossae is because of the Apostle Paul. And if Paul hadn't written it, you wouldn't know anything about it. Uh, Edmund Hebert. It is due not to any spectacular events in the secular history of the city of Colossae, but rather to the simple fact that the Apostle Paul addressed a letter to the Christian assembly in the small town that the name of Colossae is today a familiar word throughout Christendom. Paul's epistle to the Colossian believers has forever enshrined that name in the thinking of Christians everywhere. This was a town of nobodies. And... If you lived there, it was like, I heard, saw one commentary who said it's a third-rate town. It's like one of those little one-blink towns out in the middle of Texas. That's this place. By the 8th century A.D., the town had been largely abandoned. There was just a few people who remained. And by the 12th century A.D., the Muslims come in and they ransack the city and they destroy it. That's the town of Colossae. So what about the church that Paul was writing to? What do we know about the little church? Go over to Colossians 1. There's one thing we know for certain about this church, and that's that Paul did not found this church. He did not establish this church, and he even says that in Colossians 1, verse 4. He says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints... Notice he says, I didn't see your faith. I haven't been a witness to your faith. I've heard about your faith. Verse 5, 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it has it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of the truth. They had received the true gospel. They understood the gospel. They believed the gospel. But that gospel proclamation was not made by Paul. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, you haven't even seen my face. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are with you at Laodicea. And for all those who have not personally seen my face. Notice he includes Laodicea in his comments. And he says, those in Colossae and those in Laodicea have not seen me personally. Paul didn't found the church. Who did? Well, fortunately, we don't have to guess. It tells us who founded it. Chapter 1, verse 7. Just as you learned it, it would be the gospel, from Epaphras. Our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ, on our behalf. The church was founded by a guy named Epaphras. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 12, we find out that Epaphras was actually a member of the church at Colossae. Chapter 4, verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of your member, one of your number, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Epaphras was a member of the local church, and he was likely a convert of Paul's when Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Anybody remember how long Epaphras was, uh, not Epaphras, how long Paul was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey? Anybody remember that? Close. It was roughly, it was three years, two of them in one school, so... Yes, you are correct. Acts 19.10, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Notice it says all who lived in Asia. That refers to the whole Phrygian region, what the modern-day Turkey. And so Paul is in Ephesus, and his ministry is extending out through that entire region, which would include Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae. And Epaphras lives in Colossae, and that road... He's got a road that leads straight to Ephesus. And there's plenty of commerce going back and forth. It's not unheard of that Epaphras gets on that road, travels to Ephesus, meets Paul, and is converted there. And that's not far-fetched because if you look at chapter 4, verse 13, it seems like Epaphras knows Paul personally. Verse 13, Paul says, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. How does Paul testify for somebody on a personal level unless he knows him? So Paul and Epaphras are seemingly good friends. Paul knows him. They're brothers in the ministry. Epaphras is probably the pastor of the church there at Colossae. And Paul, while he has never been there, hears about this church through Epaphras and the communication he has with him. So what was the membership of the church? Philemon 2, like I said, we're going to be looking at Philemon today because Philemon was a member of the church there at Colossae. Philemon 2, I'll start in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. The church at Colossae was a home church. It was a house church. Now, commentators love a good debate, and so they debate on whether this was just one house or was this several houses. The end of Romans seems to suggest that they were meeting in houses, but it was in multiple houses. So you get this long list of people that are supposed to go greet. And that would make sense if it's going to multiple houses. And some people say, well, this is just one house. This is multiple houses. Let me end the debate. We don't know. We don't know how many houses it was. We don't know how many people were in there. But we do know that this church was predominantly filled with Gentiles. Back in Colossians, uh, Colossians 1, verse 27. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his 
of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. That's Christ in the Gentiles. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Before you were a believer, you were uncircumcised. That would not be true of a Jew. He's writing to Gentiles. This is a Gentile region. It's predominantly Gentiles in that region. And when he writes to them, he refers to them and speaks to them as though they were Jews. He also does not bring up a whole lot of Old Testament quotes. Actually, if I remember correctly, he doesn't bring up any Old Testament quotes. Whereas you look at a book like Hebrews, Old Testament is everywhere. Here you have no Old Testament. But that doesn't mean that there were no Jews there. Because just the mere fact that he mentions circumcision suggests that, well, they understand something about Jewish custom. And history tells us there were Jews in the area. And we know that because in the 2nd to 3rd century B.C., Antiochus III, or Antiochus the Great, who was the Assyrian king, sent roughly 2,000 Jews to Phrygia. Now, I went back and I, I started looking at this. If you read Josephus... He actually has a letter from the king. And there was something about a rebellion going on in Phrygia, and so he was sending 2,000 Jews because that was somehow going to help with the rebellion. I, I'm not sure how, how that all worked out, but he sent 2,000 Jews to Phrygia. Well, the primary cities in Phrygia are Ephesus, Laodicea, Colossae, and Heropolis. And so it would only make sense that this church in Colossae would have some Jews in it because, well, there's Jews living in the area. And there is evidence that the Jews in Phrygia weren't exactly orthodox in their beliefs. And that will become relevant later. The Jewish Talmud, Jewish Talmud gives Jewish tradition, has this statement. The wines and the baths of Phrygia have separated the ten tribes from Israel. They're not really speaking highly of the Jews in Phrygia. They were a little unorthodox, and as we look at the error of the Colossian church, we'll see what that error was. Okay, so we know who founded the church. We know something about the church itself. When did Paul write this? Anybody remember? 62. Okay, where was Paul? Paul was in prison. He was in prison in Caesarea. Rome. Yes. I was just seeing who remember from last week. Yes, he's in prison in Rome. So why is Paul in prison in Rome writing a letter to a church he's never been to? What's the occasion that brought this about? Well, the first occasion, the first reason Paul decides to write is that he needs to return the slave Onesimus back to his master. Jump over to the book of Philemon, and this is where we'll hit on the book of Philemon today. Let's learn a little bit about Philemon and this guy named Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave. We know that verses 15 and 16 of Philemon. He says, For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you, for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Onesimus was the slave of Philemon. That was not uncommon during that day. Please don't think uh, American slavery very different. This wasn't a racially based slavery. He may have been born as a slave, or he may have been sold into slavery. We don't know. But he was a slave of Philemon, and he left. And he left Philemon, and he runs away. And Paul writes to Philemon and says, you should welcome him back. Why should Philemon welcome back this slave? Because he's a recent convert. He's now a Christian. Before, he wasn't a Christian, and he was useless to you, evidenced by the fact that he ran away. 
now he's a brother in Christ. Philemon verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So Paul, while he's in prison, meets this guy named Onesimus. Now you remember in the end of Acts, Paul's in house arrest, right? He's allowed to have visitors. He's probably even allowed to leave the house as long as he has his guard with him. So it's not unlikely that he would have met Onesimus. And he gives Onesimus the gospel. Onesimus had fled from his master. He went to Rome, finds the Apostle Paul. He gets converted. And the two of them build this little friendship. And Paul was not excited about sending Onesimus back. He realized he needed to send him back, but he really didn't want to. Philemon, verse 11, speaking of Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. As an unconverted man, Onesimus was not much use to Philemon. As an unconverted man, he wasn't much use to Paul either. But now that he's been converted, he has been a a tremendous help to Paul while Paul's been in prison, and he's been a tremendous help to the ministry. And so Paul is going to send this runaway slave home. And I have to think that he would have sent him home with some instructions on how he's supposed to behave now that he's a Christian. And you think of anywhere Paul in the prison epistles talks about slaves? Ephesians. We're in Ephesians. Do you know? Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, render service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. I would imagine that Paul would have told Onesimus, Okay, look, I know you don't like being a slave, but now you're a slave of Christ. And so you are to go back to your master and you're to serve him like you would serve Christ. And even in Colossians 3, starting in verse 22, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, But with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Onesimus, go back to your master and serve him as though you were serving Christ. That is your job. And so Paul writes to Philemon and he says, look, I'm sending him back to you. Philemon 12 I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. I wish I could keep him here. He's so useful to me. He's such an encouragement to me in my imprisonment. But i got to send him back, and I don't want to. What's the driving motivation behind Paul's encouragement to Philemon? What is it should encourage Philemon to receive the slave back? It's the fact that he's now a brother in Christ. That's why Philemon should take him back. And Philemon is a man who loves Christians. He loves the brethren. Just look at how Paul speaks of Philemon. Philemon, verse 1. To Philemon, our beloved brother, and fellow worker. Verse 5, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. You love the saints, you love the Lord. Verse 7, for I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts have been refreshed through you, brother. You refresh, you encourage other people. Verse 9, yet for love's sake. I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner in Christ. I want you to take him back because he's a brother, and you love the brethren. That's who you are. And you might think, well, yeah, but you're sending him back to a slave master. Yes, but he's sending him back to a Christian. A Christian who Paul commends. 
And nowhere in this letter is Philemon accused of in any way mistreating Onesimus. In fact, Philemon would have known Paul's encouragement to slave masters. Colossians 4 verse 1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Treat Onesimus not just as your slave, but treat him as a brother in Christ, because you will be held accountable to the Lord for how you treat him. And receive Onesimus as you would receive me, is the statement, is the idea. Verse 17 of Philemon. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. That's such a wonderful picture of the gospel. Impute that to me. Credit his fault to me. And I'll pay whatever it is that he owes. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Paul sends Onesimus back. And he sends him back with a guy named Tychicus. Anybody remember Tychicus from the book of Colossians? What did Tychicus do? Told, you guys didn't know you were coming in for a quiz today, did you? Yeah. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. As to all of my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He sends Tychicus back with the letter to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, and to Philemon. Tychicus is being the mailman. And he's carrying the letter back, and with him... He brings Onesimus, and he says that. Next verse. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. And here we find that Onesimus is one of the numbers in Colossians, which means Philemon is also a member of the Colossian church. They're both from Colossae. And so Paul says, hey, look, I need to write a letter to the Colossians. And I need to send Onesimus back to Colossae anyway. So I'll just kill two birds with one stone. And I'll send Onesimus back with the letter. And Tychicus will deliver the letter. And so that's what he does. So the first occasion, the first reason Paul's writing is because he needs a way to get Onesimus home. And this is a good way to do it. Second reason for sending in the letter. He had received some word or received information that there was error and heresy creeping into the churches at Laodicea and Colossae. Epaphras has been faithfully ministering in Colossae. He's been doing his best. They haven't had an apostolic visit. And if you can imagine getting converted, going home, and trying to plant a church on your own. And you don't have a completed New Testament. And Epaphras is there at home struggling to do this. And then he realizes there's error seeping into the church, and there are problems in the church. Colossians 1, verse 7, Just as you learned it, the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Epaphras finds out there's a problem, and there's error seeping into the church. And it gets to be such a problem, he realizes, I can't contend with this, I don't have, I'm not equipped for this, and so he makes the 1,000 to 1,300-mile trip to Rome. And he goes to Rome to find Paul to get some help. And we know that because when Paul wrote to Philemon, Philemon 24, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. So when Paul writes to Philemon, he says, Look, Epaphras is here and he's my fellow prisoner. Well, what does that mean? Well, he had traveled to Rome, and while he's there, there's two possibilities. While he's there, the Romans realize, this guy might be a problem. 
And so they say, well, you're in, since you like Paul so much, why don't you join him? That's one possibility. The other possibility is Epaphras was just so committed to Paul that he didn't want to leave. And so Paul refers to him as my fellow prisoner. So Epaphras gets to Rome. Paul calls him my fellow bondservant. This also explains if Epaphras is locked up. This explains why Epaphras didn't take the letter to the Colossians home. Why didn't he just send the letter back with Epaphras? Epaphras is stuck. He can't go anywhere. And so he gets Tychicus and says, here, you take the letter back. Epaphras is here with me. And Tychicus and Onesimus head back. And while Epaphras, if you read through the book of Colossians, it seems that Epaphras gave Paul a fairly positive report about the church in Colossae. He commends them repeatedly throughout the book. It also shows that Paul had some significant concerns about the church in Colossae. Turn over to Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to get someone else to read, so you guys don't, don't fall asleep on me. Would someone read Colossians 2, 1 through 4? For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. That last phrase there. The whole point I'm telling you all this is because I don't want you to be deluded. I don't want you to hear their arguments and believe the arguments. Paul is deeply concerned. Over in Colossians 4, we learn that Epaphras has the same concern. Verse 13, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. This error, this heresy that was getting into the church of Colossae was also infecting the local churches in the other cities, in Laodicea and Heropolis. And this was Paul's primary reason for writing his letter. Sending Onesimus back was just icing on the cake. This was his main concern. It was the arrival of a false teacher that Paul wanted to deal with the most. And I say it was the arrival of a false teacher. Every time you hear, every time he writes about this person, it's always in the singular. It's never in the plural. He, his, always singular. And that, is this a dude traveling around or just... We're not sure who he is. And we'll talk about that in a minute because Paul never addresses who this guy is. And that's one of the reasons there's, there's some debate on what exactly is the problem. Because we don't know who this guy is. And that brings us to the purpose statement of this. This is from Dr. Essex. It's on your handout. The purpose of the book, Gentile Christians were taught about Christ and their union with Him and were exhorted to have their conduct flow from that union with Christ. Paul's purpose in this book is twofold. One, he wants to deal with the error and he wants to refute it. And two, he wants to strengthen and encourage the believers to hold fast to the gospel that they had learned from Epaphras. So what was this error? This is the big, big debate in this book. What is the error? What is this Colossian heresy that he's trying to deal with? First, I want to make sure that you realize that this is a heretical error. If you turn back to Colossians 1, verse 23, notice how Paul speaks about the error. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister, don't walk away from the gospel. Hold on to the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This was an error that gets right down to the person and the work of Christ. They were not in danger of just getting something wrong. They were in danger of losing the gospel. But here's the thing. 
the book doesn't give us enough evidence to definitively say this was the error. This was the heresy. We have indications on what it was, but we can't pinpoint it. Uh, Edmund Hebert. It is difficult to determine the exact nature and origin of this so-called Colossian heresy. All that is definitely known as to the nature of this teaching must be learned from the incidental statement of Paul concerning it in this epistle. Since we are given no systematic presentation of its contents, but only passing references to phases of it, differences of view as to its exact nature and its origin have been advanced. All we have is how Paul deals with the argument. He doesn't give a systematic layout of what it is. It's not like he gives you the systematic theology of the Roman Catholic Church and then goes and refutes it point by point. He just gives his refutation of it. Said the Colossian heresy, however, cannot be identified with any particular historical system. It contained two basic elements, false Greek philosophy and Judaistic legalism and ceremonialism. And you'll see both of those when we look at this. There's Greek philosophy and there's this legalistic Judaism that shows up. So let's look at these two aspects, the philosophical and the Judaism. This error seemed to have a lot in common with Greek philosophy. Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, an empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Greek philosophers loved the idea of knowledge, of having information, of having knowledge. And in their vast knowledge, they hated the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.22, Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's just stupid. Anybody who has any knowledge would never believe that. It was too simplistic. They preferred what Paul here refers to as empty deception. Vain lies. It was a system composed of a lot of useless speculations with no foundation in truth. Colossians 2, verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Notice this error caused them to inflate, be inflated, to be proud. Knowledge puffs up. And this is where we, we see he isn't identifying the false teacher. He doesn't point out the guy's name. He doesn't deal with any of his teachings. He just focuses on refuting the argument, which might be helpful when we're talking about apologetics. If you're trying to evangelize someone who believes differently, don't attack what they believe. MacArthur said this about this. He said, look, somebody they loved and trusted led them to believe that. And you're not going to lead them out of it by attacking the person they love. It's a great point. And that's kind of the idea he's giving here. He's not attacking this guy. Greek philosophers, certain Greek philosophers, had this idea that they'd have visions. And they'd see things, and it, these visions would give them special insight, special knowledge that nobody else had. This would later develop into what is known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And it taught that matter was bad, all physical things were bad, but God is good. Well, if you believe that, then you have to come up with an explanation of how a good God creates evil matter. And so they came up with the idea that God sends out emanations. An emanation of God would be like an angel. Jesus would be an emanation who comes from God, but he's not actually God. And it's through the emanation that God creates. So it's not actually God creating the evil matter, it's this emanation. And these emanations also provide knowledge and information. And this information is what you need in order to be saved. And so these, this false teacher came in and started saying, look, I have access to this, this emanation from God. You don't have access to it. And if you want to be saved, I'm your guy. You need to know what I know. And 
he would say, look, this is coming from an angel, which is why in Colossians 2.18 he says, stop worshiping angels. Because they would worship these emanations. And so this little scheme that this teacher had caused some real problems. Caused some real problems in their theology. When you say Jesus is just an emanation of God, your gospel is a little twisted. First, it rejected his humanity. And this is where this gets really weird because they say, well, he wasn't actually human because, well, God hates matter. And so if you're going to say Jesus is God, then he can't be human. Colossians 1, verse 22, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And Paul responds to them and says, No, 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 you don't understand. If he's not a human, you're not reconciled. Salvation doesn't work if he's not human. And then other people say, well, fine. Well, if you're going to say he's a human, then he can't be God. Because God hates matter. Okay, Colossians 2.9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You see how he's refuting the argument that he can't be God and man at the same time? The other aspect of this heresy was a legalistic form of Judaism. And Paul portrays circumcision here. And he essentially says, look, it's not necessary. You don't need to be circumcised. Look at Colossians 2, verse 11. And in whom you were also circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. It's not physical circumcision that you need. The false teacher who's coming and telling you, you need to be circumcised, he's wrong. You need the spiritual circumcision that Christ gives. Colossians 3, verse 11. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. They promoted not only circumcision, but this false teacher promoted keeping the Sabbath and keeping dietary restrictions. If you really want to be saved, you've got to stay away from the bacon. Cannot have bacon. Colossians 2.16 Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Hey, Colossian believers, don't be scared about what this guy is saying. If you don't keep some festival that he's telling you to keep, it's not going to change your salvation. You don't need to stick to all these little rules about what you're to eat and what you're not to eat. And it went beyond just what they would eat. This false teacher was promoting a strict form of asceticism. Asceticism is a harsh treatment of the body. It's uh, like the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Evil period where they would flog themselves. You, you treat the body harshly. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men. Stop submitting yourself to these little rules. 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Severe treatment of the body. Brutalizing the body, thinking that's somehow going to stop you from engaging in sin. So what's Paul's solution? What's Paul's argument here? He exposes the fundamental problem with the argument. What's the fundamental problem with their argument here? The fundamental argument they're making is this. Yes, you have Jesus, but he's not enough. You need more than Jesus. You need my knowledge, you need my rules, you need to keep the dietary laws, you need to keep the, you need to do all these things so you can be saved. Jesus is not sufficient for you. And if all you have is Jesus, you're not going to make it. And Paul's antidote to this little error is to show that Christ is sufficient in every way. Christ is all you need. As he said in Colossians 3, he is in all, he is all and he is in all. 
He's everything that you need. Let's just look at the argument here. The false teachers claim that they had special knowledge. How does Paul refute that? Colossians 2.2 That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You want wisdom and knowledge? Don't go to this false teacher. Run to Christ. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. He makes the same argument against philosophy. We looked at Colossians 2.8. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy in empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, but rather, rather than according to Christ. If you want to understand wisdom, you go to Christ. They're to be captivated by Christ. The false teachers said that they needed to follow rituals and Sabbath days and dietary restrictions. Paul responds in 2.17, These are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I mean, think about what he just said there. These are a shadow of the things to come. Do you follow a shadow? A shadow is passing. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. As soon as the sun goes down, the shadow is gone. They're meant to go away. It's not the shadow you follow, it's the person who's casting the shadow that you follow. And all of those rituals, all of the law was meant to point you to Christ and to bring you to Christ and to show you you can't live up to the law. And what about those dietary restrictions? We looked at 2.23, the end of 23. All those dietary restrictions, the harsh treatment of the body, he says, are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You can beat your body all day long. It's still not going to change the fact that you have a sinful heart. And if you don't deal with the heart, you're not going to make any progress. They're all useless. They're nothing more than self-made religion. You don't need all of that. You need one thing. What's the one thing you need? You need Christ. That's what you need. Colossians 3, 1. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That means don't fill your mind with the empty, vain speculations of the world. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Christ is sufficient for your salvation. He's superior to all of those things. And everything the Colossian believers need can be found in Christ. Colossians 1 verse 13, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The rescue's been accomplished. You've been moved from one kingdom to the next. It was done by Christ. Without your laws, without the legalism, without the self-abasement. Chapter 2 verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. All of redemption was accomplished by Christ. And thus, because Christ accomplished all of your redemption, because He did everything you need, He should have the first place in your life. He should be the most prominent thing in your life. Would someone read Colossians 1, 15-18? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. He should be above everyone and everything. So he is preeminent. He is able to present you to the Father complete. 
everything you need for spiritual growth, everything you need to be perfect before the Father is found in Christ. In Christ. Colossians 1, verse 28. We proclaim Him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It's through the proclamation and the teaching about Christ that a person can grow in maturity. You grow in maturity as you learn about Christ. You don't need all this extra special knowledge. His message is really, really simple. Christ is everything. That's the message of Colossians. Colossians 2.9, He is God. Colossians 1.16, He is your Creator. Colossians 1.20, 2.13 and 14, He is your Savior. Colossians 1.18, He's the head of the church. And therefore, Colossians 1.18, He should be the head of your life. The ending of his book, starting in chapter 3, he transitions. And he says, look, since Christ did all this for you, since Christ is who he is, that means you should change. Your life should be different. Colossians 1.10 says you should be seeking to be pleasing to him in all respects, in everything that you do. And not just turn away from the outward sin. The false teachers just wanted them to change their outward behavior. Christ wants to rule in your heart. He wants to deal with the inward sin. And so Colossians 3.5 that Carl mentioned earlier talks about greed and idolatry of the heart. So chapter 3, he deals all with how to live. Your relationship with Christ changes how you behave at home. Colossians 3.18-21. It changes the way you go about your work. Colossians 3.22-25. It changes the way you exercise authority. If you're in a position of authority, it will change and affect how you lead. Colossians 4.1 Your position, your relationship to Christ should change how you interact with others, how you speak. Colossians 4.1 Oh, excuse me. Colossians 4.2-6 He is all and in all, and He should affect all. Alright, well, it's 10 o'clock. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Uh, we thank you most of all for Christ. Um, we do ask that you would help us to come to know him better, that uh, he would rule as supreme in our hearts, that uh, we would set him above everything else in this world, that we would set him above our own desires, our own uh, vain speculations, that we would come to know him fully, that uh, he would affect and change every aspect of our lives, and that we would bring all of our life into conformity to Him. And we ask this in His name.